Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. Today I'm going to talk about hand-rolled recursive descent one-character-look-ahead parsers. Whoa, that's a mouthful. What the heck are those, and why do I care? Okay, a parser, a language parser, is a, a tool for converting one kind of language into another. It's really the part of a tool for doing such a thing. It's a tool for understanding the structure of a language, which is a long step towards understanding the whole of it and then being able to convert it into some other language. What would you use it for, really? Well, recently, in you know, not too distant past, I had a reason to convert small expressions written in Python or the programming language R or another programming language which looks vaguely like Java or JavaScript um, into a lispy expressions because I could then push them through a URL, what, a URL, and read them out of the URL the other side and then break them out into some sort of executable format and execute them. What the heck was this about? Well, it's for H2O's project to do big data on you know everyday uh, programming tools. And we could take uh, a Python expression and convert it to a lispy looking expression, jam it through a URL, through a REST interface, and have a web server on the far end parse it back out and understand the programming meaning, and then execute the data on a, a cluster which maybe was handling multiple terabytes of data on what was otherwise a tiny laptop running a Python process, or an R process, or some other kind of language. And, and you know, you can also use it to convert languages that are maybe uh, some sort of C-like language, but it's new, it's a little different. I've got Kotlin and I want to convert it to Java. I've got Go and I want to go to C, or I've got C and I want to go to Go. I've got Elm and I want to go to JavaScript, or I've got Scheme and I want to go to Elm, or whatever the hell. Things that have some sort of structural recursive nature about the language. This is, uh, you know, a, a hand-roll recursive descent parser is easy to write, super fast. These things have been around forever, so the, the way you write them is really fine-tuned, and they're easy to understand, that's the key, which means you can tweak and twiddle with them, and so you can start small and handle a part of a language, and build up and build up and build up, and you're handling all of a language. Why hand-rolled? Because almost always it's too simple to bother with using tools that do this, which would be like Lex or Yak or Bison, these kind of tools. They exist. But the problem is typically so simple, it's not worth using the tool because the tool adds an overhead to programming. It's supposed to make life easier, but it adds this complexity, which is you have to debug the input to the tool via the output from the tool. And, and sometimes it's pretty simple for Lex or Yak um, if you know the theory of how they're operating. But as soon as the tool itself is not very stable, adding the tool to a problem which is itself very simple makes the problem much, much harder. This is just not worth the effort to grab these things unless you happen to know you have a, a close fit. You know, hand-rolled parsers typically fit on one or two pages of code, maybe more if you have a really complicated language to parse, or you want all the bells and whistles because you're making a, a, a full-blown sort of for sale uh, language implementation and you need like super good error handling and the like. But if you're just doing some sort of, I'm exploring what it means to screw around converting a language from one form to another, they're hard to beat. And, and you can start really simple, and, and what I mean by that is you can start by having a REPL. If you want to know what REPL is, yes, yes, uh, read, eval, print loop. Uh, a REPL is a great way to start with these things too. Um, you just read an expression, evaluate perhaps an algebraic expression only, like you might get off of a you know, cheapo TI calculator, and then you know, evaluate the expression if you want, and then print the results and go back and read another expression. And once you get that one going, you might 
make the language more complicated, allowing for types to be put in, or infix versus prefix function calls, and, and, and then you build one thing after another after another until it becomes really fancy and you have a full-blown design. You are limited here to languages which can be decided what they mean by looking ahead. So this is a one-character look-ahead parser. It's not actually one character, but a small count of characters. Typically, limit is two or three for certain kinds of tokens, so I can tell uh, an equals equals from an equal greater than token, for instance. But you don't need more than that to decide how the language works. And most modern languages can be parsed this way by design because it's easy to think about. It looks good. You can tell at a glance what the program means. You're at least at a syntactic structural level. And then, of course, you get to use these really fast, easy parsers, so it's easy to explore what it means. Okay, so how does this work? So you're going to want to have your program text handy. And the obvious thing to do is you just load it to one giant buffer. Um, unless your program text is truly gigantic, just throw it in a big buffer. Um, for testing, you'll just have strings of test strings of programming language snippets you're going to pass and so on, just a buffer. And then you're going to want a cursor or a pointer into the buffer. And the languages like C with exposed pointers, a car star. For, for Java and reference languages, typically you use an array index into the, into the buffer. It's just a number which indicates where you are in this wad of text. And then most of the time, you'll be making, you know, as part of the language parsing, you'll be making function calls which need the program text, so they need a big array. They need the cursor, the index, the character index of the car star, and they're going to look at some characters and make a decision and then bump the cursor, typically, but return what they've parsed, what they've looked at in the buffer, maybe after modifying it somehow. So there's a side effect to go on with the value that's getting returned. And you know the obvious thing we love to do with languages is have our functions be pure and have no side effects, but then you have to return two things, the updated cursor and the thing you actually want to return from your parsing function. It gets a little messy. Um, it's actually really easy to instead make a parse object, a capital P parse class object, just one golden instance that contains the cursor and you pass that into every function as the this pointer object oriented programming and bump the cursor as you go inside the parse object. If you're doing a, a, a stateless language like Elm, I would you know return a, a tuple of the updated parse, parse pointer along with the thing I actually want to parse. Okay, so um, given this kind of a design, I, I end up having uh, I, I want to still have a bunch of lexing functions. What I said lex or yak as tools. Lexing functions. Are, are things that are very low level that don't understand program text beyond a series of characters in a row that we think of as an isolated unit. The common thing would be I'm looking for a number, so I'm only looking at digits, and as soon as I find a non-digit, I stop. I'm looking at uh, white space, and as soon as I find something I don't declare white space, I stop. And white space might be tabs and spaces and new lines, but it might be slash slash to end of line or slash star to star slash or whatever white space is. I want something that just rolls forward through the code until I'm out of white space. And when it's done, the cursor points out the first non-white space character and maybe I return the non-white space character on the white space skipper. I might have other lexers for uh, program identifiers, uh, keywords, and so on and so forth. There's a couple different ones you need. If you're doing like an IEEE double precision floating point parser, that's pretty complicated. I would go get one from Stack Overflow, but it won't be a simple thing to write, but conceptually it's very simple. It's start at something that looks like a, you know, a character of an IEEE number, which would be a digit, and return you the double value and bump the cursor past the end, right? 
Okay, the other thing that might happen in these lexers, it is a chance that there's an error, and this happens in, in recursive descent parser everywhere. You have to think about error handling and what do you do. The obvious thing to do it, when you're getting started is simply stop at the point of the first error. It makes for really lousy error handling. Um, you'd like to do some error recovery and carry on. That's more complicated. Don't bother in the beginning. So the first thing you do is you have a notion of, if I hit an error where I don't like what's going on, pretty print the nicest message I can and just bail out whatever bailout means in Java throw an exception and see you, you return some value that's got a, you're dead now, unwind. It could even long jump your way out like an exception, whatever. So so, so just die and, and get out. And error handling is a, is a whole nother topic that maybe doesn't make sense in a podcast. Now that it's not useful and any you know, heavily used tool beyond sort of a simple, my own little project, you need error handling, but don't start there. Okay, fine. Which means that all your functions don't actually deal anything with errors except die. So you really are going to have them return the thing that they're lexing on and bump the pointer, the cursor pointer that got passed into it. Okay, so let's talk about uh, a, a sample lexer um, for parsing, say, an integer value. And this is a function that already knows that you advance the curse to the point where an integer value makes sense. For instance, some other function higher up has peeked at the program text under the cursor and discovered there's an integer. And so you think you're going to parse an integer here. So what does this integer parsing function do? Well, it probably pulls the character up under the cursor, decides it's a digit. If it is, it has a running sum already. It multiplies the running sum by 10 and adds the digit to it. Well, okay, so let me, let me, let me throw in a little more detail here. There's a running sum. It can overflow, I'm ignoring that, but that's another error case that you just blow up on if you define an integer that's just too big. I'm assuming the radix is 10, but it might be something else, but we can get there. Let's not start there. The thing you pull up, the character you pull up under the cursor is not actually a number from zero to nine. It's an ASCII character. And how do you convert ASCII characters to zero to nine range, an ASCII digit of zero to nine into the value, the numeric value zero to nine. The easy thing to do is you subtract the zero character, not zero. You subtract the zero character from an ASCII digit, and that'll give you a number from either zero to nine, or if it's not zero to nine, it ain't a digit. And that's just it. So if it's not a digit, you're done. You, your integer is over with. You're looking at something that ends an integer parse. And if it is a number from zero to nine, scale by 10 or by the radix and add your digit in and loop and go again and you move the cursor forward and go again. And when you discover that character, which is not uh, an integer, stop moving the cursor forward, leave it parked at the first character that's not a digit and return the, the primitive value. Don't return a Java capital I int capital L long. No, no, return the primitive value just parsed out. And you'll have side effected move the cursor forward. Eh. Okay. Um, another interesting lexer is one that would parse, for instance, language identifiers. Um, and these are generally some sort of alpha character, alphabet, upper or lowercase, A through Z. And, and then once the first alpha happens, you can also allow typically uh, digits. And uh, some languages allow underscores or dollars or whatever you decide belongs in a language identifier. And you're going to roll through until you find something that fails the test for a language identifier. And you return the string of the language identifier and the cursor advanced. Um, and let me get into returning strings here. In the land of C, uh, C buffers, it's very common, easy hack is to return a, a car star, a pointer directly into the buffer you're parsing. But to make it a valid C string, you have to jam a, a terminating null character at the end of the string. And this is totally legit. And you don't have to copy the string text. And not copying string text speeds things up by a lot. 
if you think about the problem, you're going to run at a speed of, you know, your parser is going to run a speed, which is how fast can you load things in from memory into the registers as you roll forward. You can make this all happen in one pass, but if you do allocation, um, you typically start to double the amount of memory you have to touch, and that will have your speed. So not copying text here. Um, it's a speed up. It makes you think about how you're doing allocation. So it, it's a speed up, though. So decide if you want to deal in your first cut with copying characters or not. Once you get things fine-tuned, it might make sense to, to do the no copy speed optimization. Beginning, eh, pull the damn token out as a string or whatever the hell is in Java land, make it a string and return that. Another, you know, I, I talked about having a white space skipper, um, you know, maybe include a couple of different kind of comments and skipping. And, and once you have a couple of these lexers in hand, we can start to write the bones of a parser. And, and when I say the bones, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about the structure of the parser is going to match the structure of your language. It will almost look almost exactly like a, a BNF diagram. Look it up, Bacchus Noor uh, form diagram for the language. And it might be a little simpler than the actual language intends and accept a simpler language. And you might need some other passes over what you get back um, to do some sort of checking for correctness on the, the usage of types and you know missing identifiers and whatever. There's all kinds of correctness checking people do in a more complicated language. But to start with just doing the parsing, you, you can get from the bones of parser, you can get back something that resembles the language, but in a format that's a lot easier to deal with. Typically, languages have a recursive structure. So typically, you build a tree to model the recursive structure that's not requirement, but it's totally a thing you can do here. So let's look at our, our you know, hypothetical language and our hypothetical parser. Our, our top level parser function is going to parse a whole file typically, and it will typically parse a file into, I'll call it a module, but I don't know what it is, you know, a package in Java, whatever, or it's a single top level class or, or in Java or whatever it's going to be. So you have some sort of top level thing you're going to parse. Let's call it a module for, for sakes. And the, the module parsing function typically has this pattern where it's going to skip white space and look for top-level declarations. And then it's going to return a list of top-level declarations that it found for that module. And this is what I've chosen to have this partial return. But maybe if I'm just doing a linty thing, I don't actually have to return anything except linty errors. I don't know what. But if I actually want to do something with the language, I probably want to gather top-level declarations in a module. Um, if I have like an import or an include statement, I might do recursive parsing where I load some other file and parse it or load some short form in the case of a Java import from a class file and load that in as a, as a starting point. You know, th those are part of the parsing game where I would look at the things that are expecting the, the top of decals. Some of them wouldn't be declarations, they'd be imports. So let's assume I don't have any of that. I'm actually doing top level, a list of top level declarations. So my module function, parsing function might look like, you know, while I see white space, skip it. If I'm at the end of file, done, and return however many top-level decals I found, else parse a top-level decla uh, declaration and accumulate it, and that's it. This is a really short function. You're going to call a couple functions in a loop. There's a skip white space. There's a did the cursor hit the end of buffer test, which is just straight up end of buffer, you know, I'm, I'm at the end. Or, uh, you know, and, and then I have a list of top-level declarations I'm now returning. What does it mean? So, so in this function, I talked about skipping white space. That seems straightforward. What's it mean to have a top-level declaration parser? 
And in the top level declaration parser, won't start with white space because we skip white space. So it'll start on some character that's not white space. And it probably wants to look for some set of token identifiers that match certain patterns that are keywords like private, static, abstract, class, interface, whatever. And then maybe a type parse like int or double or foobar pointer. And then an identifier, I'm declaring a class, you know, a class silly. And then maybe an assignment or a function declaration, like an assignment might be int foo equals 17, right? Might be final int foo equals 17, whatever it's gonna look like. We're always gonna start by expecting some kind of tokens. So we're gonna call our token lexer. And then what happens next depends on this token we get back. So we're gonna keep the cursor's location before and after the parse. But the cursor's a single, simple, primitive field. It's either a car star or an integer index. So we just squirrel a copy of it and call the identifier parse and we get a string backwards identifier and the parse, the parse pointer has moved forward. What do we do with the identifier? Well, we're gonna look for special keywords. Hey, it said private, static, final, or whatever those are gonna be, and deal with them as appropriate. I'm pretending that they don't exist in our language, we're gonna ignore them. And if we do decide we're gonna consume those keywords in the parse and do something, then we'll use the after parse cursor. But if it's not a special keyword, then we assume, because our language is defined that way, that we're looking at the start of a type. It should have said int, or double, or double pointer, or double square bracket, or some other, you know, double square bracket, square bracket, square bracket, because it's a triply nested double array, or whatever the heck it's gonna be, some sort of type keyword. But I want the type parser to parse types, not the identifier parser. So I'm gonna reset the parse pointer back to the start of the identifier, which is now we assume is a type because it wasn't a special keyword, and we'll call it a type parser. After the type parser comes back, it returns us a type, some sort of structure, object, whatever, that's sort of the reified version of the type. And now we're expecting an identifier, a language level identifier, so we call the language ID word again, and now we're expecting to be some username that's an identifier. And once that comes back, now we might be, we're looking for an assignment operator or an open paren to start a function. And so we wanna skip white space and then ask the question, is it an equals or an open paren? And no other character is valid here. And so we'll test, is it an equals, do this, if it's open paren, do that, else it's a syntax error and we do whatever we're doing for syntax errors, which is print a nasty message and die. We'll be doing this a lot, which is peeking at the character under the cursor to make a decision. Is it a top level assignment or a top level function declaration? And the decision is common enough in our writing our code. Sometimes it makes, you know, sometimes it pays to make a, a, a handy testing lexer function that just asks the question, returns me a true or false and give it a good name that says is expression or is assignment or is whatever. And if it's not, then you wanna you know, blow up. If it's not an A or B, it must blow up and say it's a syntax error. Sometimes the language will require us to have a closing brace of some kind after we've done an open brace of some kind. And it's an error if you don't see one at a certain point. So you can ask the question, hey, it's a bunch of arguments to a function and there's a comma and an expression or there's a closing paren and no other thing is valid there. And if you don't see the comma, then it's an error without closing paren. So it's really common to have a simple lexing function which tests for a particular kind of character, demands it basically, advances the cursor if it is, and else blows up with a syntax error if it's not. And, and sometimes these things that are, you know, blowing up, if not, they don't have to return a value. It's not a test. It's just a assert that you found a closing print. Then it's handy to have them return uh, something such as the parser object itself so they can be daisy chained one after another. It kind of depends on how you're writing your function. But, you know, it's easy enough to arrange these things to sort of flow code and, and pass one thing to another to, to tighten it up. Okay, back to our top level declaration parser. 
After we found, say, an equals, or now expecting an assignment, we might parse an expression, or maybe we're going to parse a function. And we have a, fun a, 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 a function ourselves in our parser, in our handle parser, that either parses expressions or parses functions. And when it comes back, it's going to return us an expression reified or a function reified or whatever we're trying to accomplish here. And now our top-level declaration is complete. We had some keywords we took out. We had a type which we held on to. We had an identifier which we held on to. We have the appropriate expression or function, whatever. And we maybe we gathered them together as a top-level declaration and we set it aside. And we're back to our top-level module parser, which is going to skip white space and look for the next one. Okay. I said I have an expression parser or a function parser. What do these look like? Well, they're very similar, and in fact, they're almost perfectly identical, and you can make them mostly identical without any, with hardly any work. But an expression parser is probably something that looks like look for an expression, optionally see an infix operator and a write expression, or maybe a semicolon to end uh, the expression, or whatever your end expression is. Maybe it's just the end of the line, or some other white space indicator. Um, if it's a function parser, again, you might see a simple identifier or an expression who's going to be typed as a function eventually. Then you see an open paren, which comes into a, a pile of arguments, which are all comma separated, and then a demand for a closing paren, and that's the end of a function invocation. And, and you know, in each of these things, you stop and say, once I have the bones of the, you know, the top-level expression, top-level function parser done, I can go recursively call into things that, like, an argument parser for a function is just the expression parser again, because it's just of any old expression. And it ends on a comma. So the expression parser does what it does until the expression ends. And it would end on, you know, I said, maybe it's a semicolon. It might be a comma in that expression. It might be white space again. It kind of depends on what your language looks like. Okay, so that's the that's the basic take on writing a, a hand-rolled recursive descent, you know, small character look-ahead parser. A, a Lisp-like parser, one with a really trivial syntax, might be done in literally a few dozen lines of program text, not counting primitives and their implementations, which might run into hundreds and hundreds, how many primitives your language has. A more complex C-like parser, which has, you know, function expressions and array expressions and curly braces and whatever, might take a file, you know, a few hundred lines, maybe a few, you know, not, but not a thousand. And you may have another file for various complex lexers, like I mentioned before, an IEEE double precision parser can be pretty complicated. String parsing could be really simple, but if you have a lot of escapes you want to handle right there on the lexer, maybe it gets more complicated. And if you have, what are the, oh my god, try try what lexers, what are there's some horrible, blutterous thing that the C language people visited for a while. You know, tokens to do uh, straight inline encodings of uh, Unicode 16 or whatever suddenly gets really ugly for a string parser. Yeah, maybe you don't want to go there without setting aside some mental space to have a good solid parser for that one. But that's a case where you're trying to write a really complicated language already. R as a programming language has a fairly irregular structure with a lot of oddball rules around whether line ends are inside or outside of various expressions. <clears throat> which makes it a little thicker, but it never gets too crazy to parse. It's, it's generally pretty simple. Okay, let's assume you do all of this, and what do you get back out? Well, it depends on what you want, but the most obvious thing you get is the ability to work through program text with a basic syntax-level understanding. And then from there, it kind of depends. If you're doing some sort of linty-like game, you maybe don't understand, don't need to understand much more complex structure. You're doing a, a variant of fine bugs, uh, but if you don't know what fine bugs is, you should look it up, it's totally fabulous. Then you know you might want uh, you might want a little more understanding, but you don't necessarily need to have a complete program semantic understanding. You're going to write a, a true compiler, and you're going to generate machine code, or you're going to generate 
a total translation from you know Scheme to JavaScript, Elm to JavaScript to C to Fortran to whatever, Go versus C, I don't know what. Then you need a full program semantics and you have a more complicated return result. And the parts is just the first step into you know building the, the greater project you're trying to build. And the point is, with this parser in hand, you can start to do stuff with programs. I myself end up writing a new programming language parser on average, I'd say about once a year. They're simple enough to write. I just spin them out whenever I see the, a need. And they make for a great way to have you know domain-specific languages that are embedded inside of other more complicated things. Are, I don't know what. I, like I said, I was doing crazy conversions to have a, a cloud-based expression evaluator. And they're just like fun toys to play with. And so with that, I'll say, you know, this has been Cliff Click, and may all your parsers be syntax error-free. Thanks. Bye-bye.